Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Joshua J. bringing you another episode of How Magicians Think. This episode is a great one. It's called The Science of Magic. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. Let's start with a joke. Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps, my friend is dead. What can I do? The operator says, calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence. And then a shot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, okay, now what? Funny, right? All right, it's not funny, but it's amusing. That joke is, and I kid you not, ranked as the funniest joke in the world. Not because it's hilarious, but because it ranked as funniest across the widest range of cultures. Richard Wiseman is a remarkable guy. He's an experimental psychologist and professor at the University of Hertfordshire. And he's created many of the amazing experiments that you see online that go viral. His experiments mess with our sense of scale or color or understanding. And he picks apart things that we think we understand, like humor, and puts them to the test. Oh, and he's an amazing magician. We'll be talking with Richard Wiseman a little later in this episode. And you'll hear a fascinating conversation I had with two neuroscientists to discover what exactly is happening in the brain when we're fooled by a magic trick. But for now, back to this joke about the hunters. You see, you might think of humor and magic as distinctly separate, but on brain scans that map neural activity, the areas stimulated by a magic trick and the areas stimulated by a good joke are the same. We process jokes in the same way we process magic tricks. They unfold in our mind in layers with our attention darting from one action point to the next. So the idea came to Richard Wiseman one day that he would search all over the world for the world's funniest joke. So he put up a survey and more than 40,000 jokes were on there and 2 million people rating those jokes. And of all the jokes, some of them really dirty, some of them clean, some of them long, some of them super simple, this Hunter's joke had universal appeal. I love this sort of scientific approach to unscientific things. You can think of this episode as the money ball 
of magic. We're going to talk with Richard Wiseman about what science can teach us about magic and what psychology can add to a magic show. Then I'll take you into the laboratory of translational neuroscience, where we'll visit with Susanna Martinez-Conde and Stephen Macknick, who are neuroscientists, to talk to us about what happens in the brain when we're fooled by a magic trick. But let's begin with Richard Wiseman and a shocking discovery about how people watching magic were made more creative. There's quite a big literature on the, A, the educational benefits of magic in terms of promoting curiosity and skepticism and scientific thinking, but B, in terms of promoting well-being. So it promotes confidence uh, and particularly, allegedly, creativity. And that's not too surprising because when you see a magic trick, you often think, well, how could you have done that? And you start to think through various scenarios. Now, if it's a good piece of magic, you'll block yourself on all of those. You'll go, it couldn't have been that, it couldn't have been that. But still, you're forcing yourself to think of alternative explanations. I suspect even seeing magic, seeing something which just simply breaks your expectations about how the world works, it makes you realise there are categories and that you're putting things into categories and so on, that's going to put handcuffs on creative thinking. And so there's other work which tries to break that stereotypical thinking, um, where you say to people, imagine a bicycle hasn't got two wheels, it's got five wheels, how would it look? And people then even become just more creative thinkers because it's breaking the stereotypes, breaking the boxes apart in their head. So what we did was to take that idea and looked at the impact of learning magic. Um, this was with a, a group of school children where we taught them how to perform a magic trick, but we measured their creativity before and afterwards. We randomly allocated children to one of two groups. We gave them all a creativity test, which was to think of alternative uses for an everyday object like a paper clip. Then those in group one were shown a very simple magic trick and shown how to perform it. Those in the other group were shown an art exercise, perspective drawing, and then they all received the creativity test a second time. And those that have seen the magic trick, learned how to perform it, become very creative thinkers, open-minded, expansive thinking, far more creative thinkers. And, and to me, that's one of the real values of magic. Magicians are very good at coming up with lateral solutions, kind of what we do for a living. There's no point in coming up with a solution that an audience member is going to come up with. Uh, you need to come up with a, a novel solution or at least convince them that their solution that they have thought of isn't correct. Richard, you showed me a card trick years ago in which you asked me to watch something and I was watching it so carefully. And then you pointed out after it was over that the trick wasn't the trick. The real essence of the trick was, at some point during the experiment, the deck you were using changed from bluebacks to redbacks. It wasn't part of the magic. You don't go, wow, it happened. The deck you were using just changed, and I didn't notice it at all. Can you tell me about that and how you developed that and what that's called and why I didn't notice so that was based on a phenomenon called inattentional blindness, and it was created by Peter Lamont and I. And it was based on uh, a previous video created by a psychologist called Dan Simons, in which people count a basketball being passed between two teams, and they don't see a person dressed as a, in a gorilla suit walking through. And it tells us a huge amount about perception that we think we're seeing the world around us and we're not. Our brains are very smart 
They're just focusing in on the part of the world that they think is really important for us to see and, and are not seeing the bigger picture, even though we have the illusion that's, that's what's happening. 99% of the time, we're right to focus our attention in that particular place. And, and actually, it, it's the reason why we're so effective as humans at doing all amazing things. You know, we can put a person on the moon or we can build an incredible bridge because most of the time our assumptions are correct. What optical illusions do, what magic does, is sneak in. It kind of exploits the 1% of the time that we're not right and, and, we, and we fool ourselves or get fooled by um, somebody else. So with our particular video, you were focusing on one task, which I think was counting the number of red cards being uh, dealt out. And for that reason, you didn't see the backs of the cards changing from blue to red, even though it was just a few inches away from what you were looking at. So it's that difference between attention and vision. We think we're seeing the whole world. In fact, we're only seeing a tiny part that we think, our brains think, is most important at that moment. I ended up stumbling into a really interesting position in which I got to research the scientific part of magic, the money ball of magic. And it all started when I was doing a show at the College of New Jersey. I was brought in to perform for the psychology department. And after the show, the psychology students asked me all sorts of interesting questions. Is misdirection better mental or physical? Uh, which cards are thought of most frequently when magicians ask for cards to be chosen? And the answer to all these questions was, um, I don't know, or I don't really know. We've never tested for that. And when I would speak on misdirection, people follow moving object, whichever hand moves first, people would say, what's the scientific basis for that? And I would say, uh, that's just what magicians have learned anecdotally. So afterward, Professor Lisa Grimm, who worked in the psychology department, asked if I wanted to be part of a series of studies on magicians for the benefit of magicians in a scientific environment. And I leapt at the chance. And we tested all kinds of interesting things that were eventually published in a paper that I wrote called What Do Audiences Really Think? in 2012 in Magic Magazine. And I'm going to tell you now some of the more shocking attributes of this study. And whether or not you're a magician is sort of immaterial because all of these things hold pretty interesting insights into the way we think. So let me start off with one. If you do any kind of public speaking at all, if you are ever a part of any kind of meetings, this is a game changer. We tested the importance of introductions. So we would show groups of people one of two clips. In the first one, it was, here is magician Joshua J doing a magic trick. But in the second one, we would give the trick an introduction. Here is world champion sleight of hand magician Joshua J doing a magic trick. And it wasn't just me, by the way. We tested for all sorts of variables. Here is world champion magician Sean Farquhar doing the trick that won him the world championship. Here is magician Ben Earl performing some of the most difficult sleight of hand possible with a deck of cards. Here is magician Bill Malone, one of the most sought-after corporate entertainers on the circuit. Here is celebrity magician David Blaine. We tested for every possible kind of introduction versus no introduction at all. Please watch this magic trick. And here's what we found. We found that audiences rated tricks that had an introduction up to 40% more enjoyable. Now, mind you, these are exactly the same tricks. 
but one has an introduction and one doesn't. And the mere idea of having an introduction made people enjoy what they were seeing up to 40% more. And by the way, it didn't really matter what the introduction was about. It didn't matter if we were pre-selecting among the peers that this is a magician's magician, or if this is an expensive magician, or a famous magician, or a world champion magician. None of that seemed to materially matter. What mattered was an introduction helped enhance the magic. Now here's the crazy part. We asked all sorts of questions of our viewers. People guessed less accurately at how the tricks were done when there was an introduction. Now, how can this be? Now, again, survey results can only give us data. They can't tell us why. But we opine that when you felt that you were watching an expert, you, in a way, surrender your reasoning. You sort of go, well, he's an expert magician. There's going to be no way I can figure out how he or she does this trick. And then you're more fooled. The point of all of this is, if you want to improve whatever public speaking you are doing by up to 40% without changing one minute of the content of what you're delivering, use an introduction. Here's another one. We tested for memory recall. We shared with people a sequence of tricks and then asked them one hour, one day, one week, and six months afterward for them to recall the magic that they had seen. And for the most part, this followed very well-known and well-trodden brain science. They remembered the last thing they saw the best. They remembered the first thing that they saw second best. And they remembered everything in the middle the least. And that follows with all sorts of memory from traffic accidents to magic shows. Didn't matter what the tricks were and how we shuffled up the tricks in the videos that they watched, the last thing they saw was the most memorable, the first thing they saw was second most memorable, and the things in the middle were least memorable. But there was a really great tragedy in this particular set of data that had a really happy ending, and it's this. People were able to recall tricks with uncanny accuracy, sometimes even a month or six months after they saw it. Well, she took a dollar bill and pulled it out of a lemon. And card tricks. Over and over and over again, people labeled card tricks as one thing. They couldn't even tell you the theme. It wasn't cut to four aces, or a card found its way to the top of the deck, or a deck of cards turned blank. It was just card tricks. And this is heartbreaking to me because I've dedicated my life to mostly card magic. There are thousands of books written on different plots within card magic. We think of separating the colors as distinctly different from pick-a-card tricks, as distinctly different from four ace tricks. But what we found unmistakably in the data is that overwhelmingly, most people think of card tricks as just card tricks. Well, there was one exception to the data that gave me hope from having to take all the card tricks out of my show for worry that they were just going to blur together. People's recall became crystal clear if the card tricks involved other objects. He took a deck of cards and pushed it through the window. The window. A card I picked ended up inside a lemon. The lemon. He threw the cards into the air and plucked one on the tip of his sword. Sword. If you can pair a card trick with another object, anchor that memory with another object, then the entire memory of the trick 
is stickier in people's minds. The centerpiece of the study was when we asked people to write in whatever answers they wanted for what it is that they liked best about magic and what it is that they liked least about magic. And the results of both cases were shocking. What people liked least about magic over and over again was not what I expected. I thought it would be the bad humor, magicians embarrassing people on stage. Those things scored, but relatively low. No, what people liked least about magic was seeing tricks they think they've seen before. And I have to tell you, this freaked out the magic establishment. They challenged the data. They were so sure this was wrong because, of course, there's a great tradition in magic that people cling to the classics. There are many magicians who won't touch a trick unless it's quite a famous trick. Linking rings, cups and balls, torn and restored newspaper. They want to do only the classics, only in the classical way. And I'm sorry to tell them that people do not like seeing tricks they think they've seen before. Now, that doesn't mean we can't perform classics as magicians, but it means we have to make people aware that what they're seeing is somehow unique. Perhaps it's, I'd like to show you this trick you may think you've seen before, but you've never seen it done in quite this way. Or I'm going to show you the way expert magician Di Vernon, often considered the greatest magician of the 20th century, performed the linking rings. You have to give them some kind of a hook that lets them know that what they're seeing is different. And lastly, what is it that people like most about magic? Well, this transformed the way I think about my entire craft. It wasn't humor. Because a lot of magicians are funny. It wasn't the mystery of magic. It wasn't trying to figure out how the tricks were done or not knowing how the tricks were done. It was none of those things. What is it that people like most about magic? I'll share that with you soon, but not yet. First, I talked to Stephen Macknick and Susanna Martinez-Conde about the scientific side of magic. You see, they're not magicians themselves, but they're fascinated by what deception brings into the brain. The brain is a meaning-seeking machine. We are constantly trying to find the reasons for things that happen around us, even when there is no reason, when things are happening for randomly around us and just uh, the reality around us is disorganized, we nevertheless try to find connections. Now, that can be very helpful for the magician because a, a number of times during a performance, you may want the audience to incorrectly connect a cause and an effect. However, that's outside of magic, that's problematic, and that leads to things such as superstitious behavior and just post hoc explanations that have nothing to do with what actually happened. And we try to reassure ourselves. We are very uncomfortable with uncertainty. So we try to find causes and explanations and just be confident that we know what's true. What we can get out with brain science but haven't done so yet, that would be really important to both magic but also the world around us, which is to understand the effects and the mechanisms of rhetoric. In magical patter, patter can be very important to how a magic trick is experienced to the spectator. And that's not a lot different than how rhetoric from a politician, for example, can lead people down the garden path of truth in one way or the other. We are easily 
fooled by what we're told by certain people who we either respect or do not respect. And the mechanisms by which that happens and how it affects our behavior are not well understood. And that's something we think we can access in neuroscience with the help of magic. We seem to be just really bad at being able to tell apart what's happening in our brains versus what's happening in reality. And we have experiments that we have done outside of magic, but related to some kind of perceptual illusions in which these perceptual changes, these perceptual flips were happening uniquely in the mind of the participants. But they were surprised at the end of the experiment because they thought that there were physical changes in the stimulus that we were running from our end when in fact it was just their own brain and their own eye movements that were producing this perceptual effect. We've looked at magic tricks that were also visual illusions and we've looked at both the contribution of visual illusions to the magic tricks but also how certain magical beliefs in the magicians themselves and what they believe might be important, how they affected the way they they did things and how it contributed to people's perception. So for example, there's a magic trick called the French drop. And the French drop is where a, a coin is in the magician's hand, they go to grab it, and then they, with the other hand, and they reveal that the coin has disappeared, okay? The effect is from the point of view of the viewer. We had a colleague named Apollo Robbins, the gentleman pickpocket. He's also a very accomplished magician. And he showed us that if he moved his hands, in a certain way, he could get people to move their eyes in straight lines called saccades or jumps. And if you move in other ways, he could get their eyes to move in curves called pursuit eye movements. Now, he didn't know these different kinds of eye movements existed, but they're very important to visual neuroscience. And he was manipulating them and they have different effects. So, for example, if you hold your thumbs out at arm's length in front of you, about a foot apart, with your elbows straight, and you make an eye movement between your two thumbs, that's called a saccade, and your eyes jumping from one thumb to the other, okay? Now, if you try and move your eyes smoothly between your two thumbs, okay, you can't do it. You just make small jumps between them as you move your eyes. Now, that doesn't mean, though, you can't move your eyes smoothly, but you can't intentionally that way. So if you now look at your right thumb and move your right thumb smoothly to your left and track your right thumb, you can see that you can move your eyes smoothly, okay? So you can move your eyes smoothly when you track something, but not when you don't. So what Apollo was doing was when he made a steal from someone's pocket or when he did the French drop and moved his hand in a straight line to move his hand away, what happened was they made eye movements that were saccades in a straight line. When he moved it in an arch, in a curve, the person had to make smooth pursuit eye movements to track that eye movement. And he was saying that there was a difference in the way they paid attention to the, the hand that he stole from if he did that. And so we studied that and we found that when people made the saccadic eye movements, they often went right back to the hand that was stolen from immediately because that was the last place they paid attention. But when they moved their hands in an arch, they actually made very slow changes in the way they paid attention to. So the last thing they paid attention to wasn't the beginning of the arch, but just a little bit before the end of the arch, and they never moved their eyes back to the beginning. So he could control what people paid attention to by the way he moved his hands. I'm of two minds about the research that these neuroscientists are doing for magic. On the one hand, I think it's exceptionally important, and I think that we have no idea yet of the doors that magic can open to the way that our brains function. But on the other hand, 
I do think that magic is more of an art than a science, and that there are limitations to what brain science can tell us about how we create magic tricks. It's certainly an area I'll be watching very carefully as we move forward. Uh, magicians have tried to figure out the mechanisms that make magic work for many years, centuries even, but ultimately you need to do an experiment and you need to apply the scientific method to decide which competing theories are true. And so some of our contributions have also been to put some magician's theories to the test in the laboratory. Really what our partnership with magicians has been about is to create a two-way street between these two different groups that have been studying the same thing from completely different directions for a very long time. And sometimes we come to different answers, but sometimes we come to the same answer, like how attention works. And so we can now build off of each other for our own mutual interests and take advantage of this uh, mutually beneficial partnership. And now I'll reveal what it is that people like most about magic. The thing that people enjoy most about magic is surprise, not knowing what's coming next. Well, this is really interesting because there are essentially two kinds of surprise that magic unveils to us. One kind is the unmotivated surprise and the other kind is the motivated surprise. The screenwriter William Goldman said that you have to surprise an audience, but in an expected way. And I've memorized that quote because I keep it at the front of my mind whenever I'm devising original illusions. Here's the thing. At any point in a magic show, I can wave a handkerchief and produce a bowling pin. And right after that, I can wave it again and produce a banana. But why in the hell am I producing a bowling pin and a banana? That's a surprise. And you may have no clue how I do it. But why am I doing it? Why is it there? It's totally unexpected to you. The key is to give people a surprise, but in an expected way. So how can we make that way expected? Well, I think the best way is foreshadowing. The best magic shows foreshadow the surprises that are coming by teasing ahead. Now this could be just a line like, Phew, you know, I don't know what you're expecting. It's not like I can make actual fruit come out here. And then later, out come the fruit. Oh, yeah, sure. You want your ring to end up over there in that sealed lock box? I don't think so. And then it ends up in the sealed lock box. You have to plant a seed in a way that when something happens, it feels like a total surprise, but also completely inevitable. I can't tell you how to add surprise into your personal and professional lives, but what I can tell you is that the data points to this being an extremely effective and powerful way to tell stories and communicate ideas. And I wish you luck in finding your own surprise. I don't think that we have to be driven by the data of these things, but I think we can be informed by the data of these studies and work in what we learn from the scientific world, from this world of psychology, to make our magic better. Because after all, we have to stay one step ahead of you, and you're coming up on us pretty fast. In the next episode of How Magicians Think, we're going to answer this controversial question. What happens if a magician reveals a secret? 
and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I was able to track down Valentino. You may not know that name, but you will know his alter ego, the Masked Magician. In his first interview in decades, I'm gonna be talking to the Masked Magician about why on earth he revealed magic secrets to audiences of millions of people and his answers might shock you. It's not to be missed. We'll see you in the next episode of How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J. And this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.